Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elite, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world, and the coming age of the machine. You know who they are. Rocket munching, Guardian reading, Oxbridge educated, extra virgin olive oil swilling, tofu eating, sanctimonious, self-righteous, liberal, wokerati, metrosexuals who preach tolerance of everyone unless they happen to think differently and would counsel you for thought crimes as wicked as believing immigration should be moderated or that sex is biological. Yes, we all know the cliché and the caricature of the liberal elite. A few of us might fit it rather too neatly. But how accurate is it? Is there really a new liberal elite imposing its will on us? Or is this all an image whipped up by over-eager culture warriors? Matt Goodwin is Professor of Politics at the University of Kent and has waded into this quagmire of acrimonious claim and counterclaim. He has done so, however, armed not simply with strong views, but with data. Lots and lots of data. His new book, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics, pulls no punches. But it does so with the help of nearly 500 footnotes, citing journal articles, research reports and the like. And that, despite only being 190 pages itself. In short... Values, Voice and Virtue is a serious contribution to a serious debate. And it's the book we're discussing this week on the show. Matt, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by asking about the very idea of an elite, because the word can be used both descriptively and insultingly. All societies have always had elites and Britain is no different. So what were the characteristics of the old elite, if that's the right term for it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, in Britain, we've often talked about the elite or the establishment. I think it was the journalist Henry Fairley who came up with the term the establishment in 1955. And at that point in time, people talked really about what I would call the old elite by referring to a sort of interlocking network of old boys connected usually through class, family titles, estates, money, essentially old Tory elite, disconnected from the country, often running through many of the critiques at the time in the 1950s and 60s. Many people saw them as being not particularly good at running the country, quite incompetent at times. But also, and I think this is an important point, also quite conservative in regard to cultural questions, you know, respected the institutions of the state, broadly believed in the country, saw the best in its history, not the worst. So absolutely disconnected from from the rest of the country, insular, small, but also believing in what Britain is, what Britain was. What I'm arguing in this book is that that elderly is not disappearing. It's still here. You can read the Sunday Times Rich List every year and you'll still see members of the elderly there. But what I'm arguing is that their power is is now drifting away to a different kind of elite. 
And they were, as you say, disconnected from the general majority of the population. But I'm guessing in their conservatism, in their patriotism, in their attitude to national history, they were probably quite close to the body of majority opinion back then. I think so, yeah. And I think that's not just, by the way, conservative elites. I think there was also an old left as well. People like Clement Attlee in later years, people like Peter Shaw, Tony Benn. There was a sort of tradition of socialist patriotism that ran through the old labour movement or a certain wing of the labour movement. And what united left and right in some regard after the the events of the Second World War, for obvious reasons, was a belief in in shared identity, shared history, and shared culture, a kind of small p patriotism that had been produced largely by the sense of obligation and responsibility that people had for other members of the country. And I do think that if you read some of the books, for example, on on Attlee, you know, John Dee's book being one of my favourites, Citizen Clem, it really comes through that on issues around wanting to retain national sovereignty, being very suspicious of supranational institutions, of basically having a small c conservatism, a belief in institutions, respect for royalty, respect for history. There was a great deal of commonality. Um, And it wasn't just about the Tory elite, it was more generally about the country's ruling class. Yes. And uh, old Labour opposed the membership of what was the EEC back in the 70s, didn't they? That was an example of that, holding yeah. on to national sovereignty from the left. Now, there were renegades, obviously. There were people pushing for, for widespread social changes and so on. But there was, as you say, a kind of agreement that, uh, you know, I went through this book looking at some of the old speeches or, you know, Clement Attlee had given, for example, on Europe or, you know, Hugh Gayskill, obviously, uh, on the same issue the way in which Labour politicians were suspicious about large-scale migration because they were worried about it undermining domestic workers. A very different way of talking about these issues than what we have today. And if you go back and read some of those speeches today, they read like conservative speeches. I mean, we'd read them as conservative speeches today. Well, there are a few differences we'll come on to, I'm sure, but that is one of the critical differences between the old elite and the new elite who are increasingly competing with them for political, social and cultural power. So let's move on to the phenomenon of the the new elite. There has been a significant shift, as you say in the book, from an industrial to a knowledge-based economy and a significant expansion of university education from the 1960s. They're the two main drivers, I think, I'm right in saying, of the emergence of the new elite. Give us a bit more detail about those. Yeah, so essentially you can't understand how the ruling class has changed without understanding how British society has changed. Um, The expansion of mass higher education, the expansion of the universities, where the share of graduates has gone from around 5% in the post-war years to coming up to about 35-40%. Within that group, by the way, I'm quite explicit in talking about the new elite as being the graduates from the elite institutions, from Oxbridge and Russell Group. And the reason that I zoom in on, on those graduates is because that's a much more immersive sense of higher education. It's a much more intense form of higher education. And we know from the research that universities tend to have a profound impact on people's values and attitudes. They do tend to push people in in a more socially liberal direction. Alongside that, we have the rise of a knowledge-based economy, the rise of professional occupations, more outward-facing, creative, knowledge-based positions for men and women. The entrance of women into the labor market, into the workforce, was also one of the big shifts that also changed the ruling class in quite an important way, made the ruling class more diverse. And what I've argued is that 
it's not just that this this kind of new elite of university graduates from elite institutions whose parents tended to also be financially privileged, financially secure, if not affluent, they've tended to move into the big cities, the university towns, the epicenters of, of economic growth, of dynamism. They were the group that benefited the most from both the post-war boom and later globalization and migration. They were the groups that had the skills, the resources to, to prosper. They were the winners, if you like, of globalization. And they've consolidated their power over the last 20, 30 years. They've consolidated it by doubling down on university education as the only metric of success in our society, symbolized by Tony Blair now saying 70% of children should go into university. They've consolidated their power by dominating the most affluent areas of the country in the most affluent postcodes. And they've consolidated their power by partly withdrawing from other people in society. So graduates have tended to marry other graduates. They've tended to live in the same areas. Their social networks have tended to be homogenous. Other academics, Mike Savage being one, has shown that this group tends to be more socially exclusive than others, meaning that their social networks online and offline tend to be dominated by people like them who share the same background, share the same values. So there's been um, an element of hunkering down among this group. And you can see that, by the way, online where members of the new elite are the most likely to unfriend people they disagree with, to block people who express different views, and to say they'd be uncomfortable if their son or their daughter married somebody from the other political tribe. So there's a very specific outlook that accompanies this group. But the most important thing about this group, which is why I think the book generated such a reaction, is unlike the old elite, the new elite have basically drifted to the cultural left over the last 30 years or so. They have moved in their attitudes and views towards being very strongly supportive of immigration, very strongly opposed to Brexit, very strongly focused on an achievement society, on prioritizing education qualifications over some of our more ascribed identities. And so the graduate, the elite graduate class have swung sharply left. And that really matters because they also tend to dominate the institutions as they've moved left. They've taken the institutions with them. They've taken the BBC. They've taken the cultural institutions, the creative industries, the schools, the universities. This is not a conspiracy. It's just what we would call education polarization. So graduates have moved left on these issues, especially elite graduates. Non-graduates, older voters, social, cultural conservatives have either stayed where they are or, or they've moved a bit right. And that is fundamentally the biggest challenge we face today is how these groups have really moved in very different directions. So a lot there, really interesting stuff. But let me pick you up on that phrase you used repeatedly, they've consolidated their power. That makes it sound as if they're quite a homogenous unit. You said it's not conspiracy, but it sounded orchestrated there. Is it that orchestrated, really? No, I think partly it's about self-interest. I think this group have moved in a way to preserve and promote their power in society. I don't think that is a... A conspiratorial thing. I think obviously we are all self-interested creatures who who seek to enhance our economic position. The old elite really projected their power and their status through money, uh, through titles, through private member clubs on Palau. The new elite have become much more focused on culture. Culture has become the dominant means through which they identify and locate themselves in society. And what I mean by that is for the new elite, they project their status, their sense of social status, their sense of power, 
by projecting their luxury beliefs, by projecting their values, their left-leaning, socially, culturally liberal values, if not their radically progressive values, their so-called woke values. They do that in order to project their power, to say, we are the ruling class. We have the right beliefs. We have the right values. We are not like the masses. We are not like the low-status gammons and bigots and Brexit voters and racists. And so culture has become a much more important source of power for the new elite than it ever was for the old elite. And that's the critical point. That's one of the key differences between the ruling class today and the ruling class 50, 60 years ago. So it has been a process of consolidation because it's not just been about consolidating their grip over media, culture, universities, creative industries. It's also been about how they've used those institutions to project their cultural power, to project a particular way of defining who we are and what we believe. Let me be a bit of a devil's advocate here. Aren't you being too cynical about this? Isn't it the case that actually they genuinely believe that tertiary education helps people up the social ladder? They genuinely believe that high-level immigration, multicultural societies are more open and more inclusive. They genuinely believe that in a globalising world, we need to move to continent-sized institutions. And that's just what they're doing. They're advocating their beliefs. Absolutely. I agree with you. They are promoting a particular worldview. They want to be nice people. They think they're making the world a better place. But there are also some very visible downsides with that. They are partly doing so to project a sense of moral righteousness over everybody else. They have supported um, a series of of changes in our society which have been catastrophic for many other voters. Such as? The relentless advance of globalisation, the relentless advance of mass migration, the concentration of power in institutions which are insufficiently transparent and democratic, the rise of a new status, social status hierarchy in our society, which essentially says if you are working class, conservative, a member of the white British majority, increasingly you are seen as morally inferior to the new elite groups within a society that prioritises minority interests and groups over the wider majority. And I think the new elite want to make the world a better place, but they're often very misguided in the things they believe. The post-Brexit environment would be a good example. The new elite are incapable, I would argue, of tolerating and accepting a different perspective on who we are and where we should go as a society. They are incapable of absorbing a critique of the liberal consensus which has dominated Britain for the last 30 years. Again, we've seen that at the events this week. As you, you and I talk in mid-November 2023, we've seen that... A day after Suella Braverman was ejected Suella from Braverman office. We've pushed out of politics. We've seen Boris Johnson pushed out of politics. We've seen Liz Truss pushed out of politics. And whatever your view of those individuals, what worries me most about Britain today and the institutions is that we are incapable, apparently, of tolerating any dissent of the social and economic liberal consensus, which has dominated Britain, I would argue, really since the late 1990s. There is, as I write in the book, there is a subgroup within the new elite, the radical progressives who represent 15% of Britain. If you look at the More in Common surveys or you look at work done at King's College, if you look at that group, they are not liberal at all. 
you know, they are curtailing free speech in the name of social justice. They are openly cynical of British history, of Western nations, which they view as being institutionally racist. They are obsessed with the idea that basically racism is everywhere. They say we cannot move on as a society unless we revisit things that happened hundreds of years ago, like slavery, but they often only view those things through the lens of Western nations. They have no interest in how those things have unfolded elsewhere in the world. And so I am very skeptical of the new elite because I fundamentally think, if you look at the evidence, they are embracing a worldview which is hardwired to push us apart, an identitarian, divisive, group-based worldview which has very little interest in individual rights, which has very little interest in the things that hold us together as a society. And your view is that those views are fundamentally different from those of the majority of the population. And I think that's persuasive. But you do also make the point in the book that if we were to scroll back to, say, the mass observation studies from the 1940s, at one point you say that two-thirds of Britons thought their political leaders in Westminster were, quote, out merely for themselves or their party. So there's always been a cynicism and distrust towards those who are in power over us, even in much more traditional societies like Britain in the 1940s. So is it really that different this time round? I think it is for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, those disputes in an earlier period were mainly over the economy. Now they're much more about a, an existential question, which is who are we? What is our identity? Who are we as a country? And I think that is a much more problematic, complex place for a country to be when the divide between the elites and the masses is as sharp as it is today. Many voters who have been rebelling against the system see their national identity, their history, their way of life as a crucial source of status for them and a crucial source of identity. Now, when you're in a country that's led by a new elite that doesn't really attach that much importance to those things or even looks down on those things, that breeds a politics of resentment. So I think there's an important difference there. I think, secondly, there's a big difference in that many voters today now sense, unlike in the 50s and 60s, that their national democracy, their ability to influence decisions, which was never, obviously, there wasn't a sort of golden age in our democracy where everything worked perfectly, but there was a stronger link between the elites and the masses. And what we've seen over the last 20 years in particular, I would argue, has been a constant attempt among the ruling class to send power, influence and decision making to bodies either to the side of democracy or above democracy, essentially diluting the link between voters and the decisions that are affecting their daily lives. As you and I talk now in November 23, we're waiting for the Rwanda judgment as an example. And here, here is an example of illegal judicial decision outside of the hands of a democratically elected government with many voters wondering why can't we make decisions that affect our own national borders and way of life? Why do we seem even now after Brexit incapable of resolving issues like the small votes crisis or deporting foreign nationals who glorify terrorism? Is that not just simply a result of fundamental globalisation that's gone on the last 30 years or so? National units simply can't solve these problems, even if they want to, even if there's a sense of our sovereignty here, they can't act independently or autonomously simply because of the way the world is at the moment. Well, firstly, those changes are exactly why this isn't like the 50s and 60s. We've seen a hollowing out of national democracy. As Chris Bickerton has argued in his book on European integration, 
we've seen an elite come to the fore which derives its legitimacy not from its relationship with the masses but from its relationship with other elites and you can see this reflected partly in the, the return of david cameron in exchange for a peerage with rishi sunak i mean there is a sense that the elite are increasingly deriving power and accountability and prestige from one another rather than from the people they're supposed to represent but the issue about national sovereignty we are supposed to be a self-governing independent sovereign nation after brexit that was essentially the request from voters that they wanted us to have control over the decisions that affect our daily lives and there are issues the refugee crisis being the most obvious that we cannot simply resolve unless we're in a wider block of countries that are dealing with northern africa instability in those regimes and the push and pull factors that have led 50 million 60 million people to want to move around the globe but at the same time we should be able to give british citizens security over their borders we should be able to leave legal infrastructure conventions that prohibit us from doing that and we should be able to remember that our ultimate priority is making people in this community the place they call home feel safe and secure most voters now i think are coming back to this issue of security and what's different between the new elite and voters is for the first time in british history politicians on both the right and the left as surveys have shown of mps they now lean much further to the cultural left than the average voter. Now, it wasn't always that way. Labour MPs certainly drifted further to the left than the Conservatives, but now everybody in Westminster leans much further to the cultural left than the average And voter. the cultural left means sort of social liberalism, multiculturalism, open borders, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so we cannot even tolerate a serious discussion in this country about where border security or multiculturalism has gone wrong as we saw in the reaction to swella braverman when she said simply and i agree completely with her we need to have a serious grown-up conversation in this country about multiculturalism not living in a multicultural society i think everybody or i hope everybody would would have no issue with that but multiculturalism as a policy which prioritizes group difference over commonality over the things that hold us together we are incapable of even having that conversation but have we not? Seriously, because I mean, I remember back in the Blair years, yeah, yeah. there was a multiculturalism in the 90s was de rigueur and then popular opinion began to swing against it. And Blair began to get cold feet about it. And Brown was distinctly less keen on multiculturalism. So surely we have been having that conversation for 15, 20 years. We had that conversation. We used to talk about things like community cohesion, integration. And I agree after 9-11, I remember that climate well. And I was describing it to my students one of whom said, well, that's all just racism. Um, <laughs> there's a serious point here. When David Cameron, Angela Merkel, and Nicolas Sarkozy can come out and say, you know, multiculturalism has failed, and we can have a discussion about it, compare and contrast the reaction to that with Suella Braverman, where much of the media class and Westminster threw their arms up and said, you know, how dare she criticise multiculturalism, not even appreciating the distinction that she was making between living in a multicultural society and the policy. And partly this takes us back to the new elite because one of the things we see is the expansion of social norms to silence and stigmatize people who critique the elite consensus. Now, 
racism is a good example of that. You know, when you're describing the English countryside as racist, or you're describing cricket as racist, or you're describing the country as institutionally racist, what that reflects to me is the way in which the new graduate class, especially radical progressives, have expanded concepts to silence and stigmatize a legitimate critique of some of these issues. So another example would be uh, social justice. If you look at the surveys of radical progressives, again, 15% of Britain, this is not a small group. They're also quite influential. The surveys show those progressives would happily sacrifice free speech and free expression if they felt it undermined their mission of social justice, their quest for minority rights and, and so forth. That is why, as Francis Fukuyama and others have written, and I've written in the book, we now face as much of a challenge from a radical cultural left as we face from the far right. And this is one of the points in the book that really upset quite a few people in the institutions who are part of that group, because they don't like to think of themselves as actually being problematic. They don't like to think of themselves as voicing a worldview which is damaging our society. They want to think of themselves as the good, the vanguard, the underdogs who are taking on the old elite. But what I've actually been saying with evidence is you know, we have some big problems here. We have some really big problems because ushering in this identity politics, this cynicism of the nation, the cynicism of our history, of who we are, of endless diversity. And as we know from studies by Robert Putnam and others, highly diverse societies have lower levels of social trust. They also tend to have lower levels of support for welfare. I recognise the picture you're painting. I suspect most people will recognise it. But my pushback would be, isn't this just politics? By which I mean, I do recognise the idea that some accusations of racism, say, are deployed far too readily. But at the same time, we have had Suella Braverman as Home Secretary twice, in fact. We had Priti Patel as Home Secretary. We've had several prime ministers who have relentlessly harped on about stopping the boats. This is out in the open. These people are not hiding away. They are saying these things. And then other people are aggressively pushing back against them. Now, that is a, quite a lively political debate, but it's nonetheless just political debate. I don't interpret it that way. I view the reaction to those interventions as telling us much about where social, cultural and political power lie in this country. To take an example of Suella Braverman or somebody like Gary Lineker, if you look at the reaction to their interventions, you would be led to believe, I think, across much of legacy mainstream media and so on, that Suella Braverman is speaking for some crank fringe minority, that she doesn't reflect British values, she doesn't reflect the values in Westminster, she doesn't speak for the country, whereas you know somebody like Gary Lineker is probably representing half the country, is cheered on by much of the ruling class in the institutions, is treated in a much more positive way. Now, if you look at the evidence on what ordinary people out there are thinking and feeling, it's, it's completely the opposite. Suella Braverman, as I've written extensively, the views that she's expressed, let's lower migration. It is an existential challenge. Let's consider a scheme like Rwanda. Let's deport foreign nationals who glorify terrorism. Let's clamp down on criminals and organized gangs and so on. These are majority views in the country, and I mean often 65 to 75%. A Gary Lineker view of, well, actually, the government is, is somehow equivalent to Nazi Germany, and we need to now begin to consider opening the doors to refugees from Gaza. 
or we should have safe and legal routes with no upper limits, or Rwanda is a racist policy. This is like a 10 to 15% view in the country, typically among radical progressives. It certainly is nowhere near to being a majority view. So what I'm just pointing out here is the national conversation, the public square, is shaped very strongly around the social norms and the taboos and the worldview of the new elite. And they are incapable, as we've seen time and time again, at allowing space for a serious alternative, never mind the policy changes that will be required to bring that about. And that is why so many voters are are leaving the established parties. I think apathy will be a big story at the election next year. It's also why the national conversation itself is becoming fragmented. Why has Radio 4 today lost 2 million viewers or listeners since the Brexit referendum? Why do we have the rise of Talk TV, GB News, a thriving YouTube podcast environment? I would argue that's not just simply reflecting the rise of tech. That's reflecting the failure of legacy institutions to adequately represent the voice of a large number of people in society. Let me put one other one to you, which is that sometimes this is just how society progresses. Now, I'm conscious that's a very provocative way of putting it, but let me give the example of Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary in the 1960s. The majority position was absolutely not for the suspension of and an abolition of the death penalty there. The majority position was not, by and large, in the 60s for equal pay or rights for ethnic minorities and so on and so forth. That was a reforming, in that sense, new elitist administration making changes that very few people would argue with today. Isn't that sometimes necessary? Absolutely. In some cases, I would also point to rights for women and rights for minority groups, equal rights across the board. Absolutely. But let's just go back to that era. There have been two phases in the struggle for civil rights, and human rights, if you like. The first post-war generation of, of civil rights campaigners, Martin Luther King, among others, argued for inclusion into the wider community. They argued for a set of rights that essentially put everybody on on the same level. They did not argue for preferential treatment. They didn't argue for affirmative action. They didn't argue for government contracts being handed out on the basis of race and ethnicity, which the Labour opposition under Keir Starmer is now advocating through its Racial Equality Act. They didn't advocate for a divisive brand of identity politics in schools which says to children, the only interesting thing about you is is your race. It's not your character, it's the colour of your skin. I think the earlier generation of civil rights campaigners, if they were to see what is happening in the institutions, would be horrified because we have gone way beyond equal rights. We have basically reshaped our institutions and our culture around a very oppressive and crude and simplistic worldview, which essentially says... There are only two groups in society. There are the oppressors, mainly the white majority, and as we've seen in recent weeks, some minority groups like Jews. And there are the oppressed minorities who are allegedly at the hands of an institutionally racist system. And I think earlier campaigners would be horrified by some of the decisions that their successors have made. And you can see that most clearly in the United States, but I think we are now rapidly importing the American approach to identity, which makes me very concerned. 
we should not be in a position where we're routinely prioritizing minority group identities, values, cultures, ways of life over the majority. We now need to get into a position where we devote as much attention to integrating people into the wider story of who we are rather than relentlessly prioritizing group difference. That's the road to fragmentation, to polarization, and to social disaster. Let's bring the story up to date. 2019 might have been a significant political realignment. I think it's probably fair to say it wasn't. Why did it fail? Was it COVID? Was it Boris? Was there no realignment to be had at all? Well, there was definitely a realignment to be had, as we saw with the 80-seat majority for, for the Conservatives a complete reshaping of the Conservative coalition around working class, non-graduate, older voters and cultural conservatives outside of the big cities and the university towns. And this was partly a reaction to all the things we've been discussing. This wasn't just about getting Brexit done. It was about wanting a new politics. It was about wanting a different way of running this country. It was about wanting to push back as hard as possible against this new ruling class and to say, we don't want mass migration, we don't want hyper-globalisation, then what those voters were given was Boris Johnson. Now, all realignments are about demand and supply, right? You can have public demand, but you've got to supply that demand with an articulate, compelling, credible political vehicle. The Conservatives subsequently showed themselves to be wholly incapable of supplying that realignment with policies and decisions that those voters wanted to see. Levelling up was never seriously done. Immigration was increased, not lowered. Nothing was done around multiculturalism, pushing back against radical progressivism. Nothing really was done around changing our London-centric economy. If anything, that was put on steroids. The Conservatives' first reaction was to deregulate the City of London and take the cap off bankers' bonuses. In fact, Boris Johnson even removed the requirement for companies to advertise jobs in Britain before they advertise jobs in other parts of the world. So in terms of actually responding to the coalition that put them into office, it was a textbook example of how not to tap into a realignment. And as indeed, as we talk in November 23, conservative strategists are in the paper saying, openly acknowledging they've given up on that realignment. They've given up on the red wall. They brought back David Cameron. They're targeting the blue wall seats. And what we've returned to is a sort of patrician liberalism, a kind of social economic liberalism that is dominant among the Tory elite, among the Tory donor class where they feel instinctively more comfortable, but which is completely at odds with what many voters out there want to see. I sit in focus groups with voters all the time. They want to talk about the most severe cost of living crisis for 50 years, a broken national health service and immigration in that order. And Rishi Sunak's talking to them about banning smoking, reforming A-levels and scrapping a high-speed rail line. I mean, they're having completely different conversations. And this is where I think, to be frank, And I've written a lot about the realignment. I've charted it with data and evidence. We have come to a point where the Conservative Party has failed to do what it has historically always done, which is reinvent itself. It's incapable of reinventing itself at the moment. So it needs a long period in opposition. It needs a heavy defeat. And it needs to go back to trying to figure out what it is, what it believes, and what it wants to do with the country, because the project it's adhered to, particularly the last few years, is not where voters want to go. It's not the vision that voters want to share. So what, in your view, should happen, and equally importantly, who, amidst the political classes, would be likely to deliver it? 
we need a new political movement in Britain that transcends left and right, which is much more in tune with where the country is, which is not beholden to financial interests in a small donor class, which is not rooted in London and the southeast, and which speaks for a much larger majority of people in the country. Is there anybody who's already doing that? I think what we have are a number of small parties scrabbling around trying to get into that space. You think about reform, you think about SDP. But if you look at the literature on what it takes for small parties to break through, it usually takes a laser-like focus on a single issue. It takes a charismatic leader. It takes financial support, big money usually, ideally from grassroots supporters. And it takes a lot of media attention. Now, in a majoritarian system like ours, all of those things are difficult, but they're not impossible. Canada in 93 would be a good example. The rise of the Labour Party would be another example. There have been moments in first-past-the-post systems where things have become so fraught and so strained that a new movement has sort of erupted and exploded. So I think my view would be we need not just a new movement, we need also a new ecosystem, a cultural ecosystem in this country, the podcasts, the YouTubes, the new media, to at least begin to fertilise and create some kind of breeding ground in, in which something much more interesting could emerge. The book is called Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. Matt Goodwin, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. I appreciate it. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Peter Frankopan about his book, The Earth Transformed, An Untold History. That correlation of benign conditions and morality is why all religions have an environmental and ecological framework to them. That looks quite similar to some of the Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, which looks like a recognisable format of a religion to me, where you have saints, you have religious leaders who are promising the apocalypse. Sometimes religions are right. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk. 